Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Tech Talk SMB. This is Charlie Guarino, and normally when I'm doing these interviews, it's typically done online, and the special guest is at their remote location. This is a different situation because I'm actually on site today, and I'm here in Tustin, California, at the Marconi Automotive Museum, and I'm, I have the unique pleasure and privilege to sit here with the owner and trustee, John Marconi. John, it is such a pleasure to, to be with you today in, in this wonderful museum. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. This is a unique opportunity. Um, Especially all the way from New York. All the way from <laughs> New York, yeah. <laughs> I wish I could have driven in one of your cars instead of taking the flight, but that's okay. Uh, John, I, I did have a chance to look at your cars, and I tell you, it's just an what an impressive, impressive collection you have here. And um, I'm just blown away by it. I'm, and I, I, I know you have some interesting things to talk about about the museum. So let's, let's, get, let's get started with that. So first of all, how did the museum even get started? It, it was kind of interesting. My dad and I, you know, we've collected cars since I was in my teens. Um, and, and it was one of those deals where we started racing he and I were racing. It, 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 it was interesting. I got him into racing versus him getting me into racing. Usually the father passed it down to the son and gets them into racing. It was the other way around. So I started in go-karts and then moved up the ladder from there into Formula Ford and Atlantic and Indy Lights and GTP, GTU and Daytona and Sebring. But what we did is it, it we, we raced for probably 35, 25, 35 years. And the third child for me came and, and, you know, we didn't, I wasn't making a living at racing. I was racing to have fun. It became, you know, we had very lucrative businesses that we created. My father is brilliant. Um, and it got to the point where I looked at it one day and my wife and I sat down and said, you know, it, it's, it's all about, it's all about me and not about the kids. So at that point in time, I pulled the plug and we retired from racing. But the interesting thing is when we, my dad and all of us stopped racing, we had all these wonderful cars in this collection, which now is, is almost, uh, well, it's over 100 cars and motorcycles. And my dad said, well, what are we going to do with this? I mean, this is all about us. Again, thinking about it's just about us. He came up with the idea, said, why don't we put a nonprofit, a foundation together, and through special events, use the money that we make um, for kids at risk. Um, his philosophy is learn, earn, and return. Um, our you know, motto is you know, that children are 100% of our future. And you know, whether it be our, 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 our kids or our grandkids, we've got to make some serious changes to this planet. So the big picture is we started the nonprofit, the foundation, um, put it all together. Um, and uh, it, it was with great success. We have special events here, and um, you know we've got a, a kitchen that, that will feed 600, um, and we do big events, uh, 35-foot diagonal screen with a 10,000-watt surround sound. So what we did is put together programs where we had birthday parties, uh, you know, uh, celebration of life, whatever you want to do in the inside the museum. And uh, prior to that, my dad's wife took it over. Uh, Bo, and she did a hell of a job, put the whole program together over the last 15, 20 years. Um, and prior to COVID, uh, we were donating almost a million dollars a year to kids at risk. Wow. So since COVID, since the first of the year, my daughter and myself, who's the CEO, 
um, has taken it over and uh, the third generation is now in place and we're taking the museum to a whole different level. That's, that's first of all, that's wonderful. The, um, the Foundation for Kids is, is really, it's just a great, great example of giving back. It's, it's, it's really a, a testament to, it's a testament to your generosity and, and, uh, and all those great things. So as I was walking around the, the, and looking at some of the cars, these cars are well out of my league as far as driving them on the streets. So, I mean, what kind of what kind of cars do you? I mean, I I can read the the brands obviously. What kind of cars are they? High performance. I've seen muscle cars. I've seen high performance cars. What do you? What's the collection comprised we, of? We get asked that quite a bit. They they look at the museum and they go, well, okay, what was the motive? What was your motive behind collecting these cars? There's they were looking for some kind of continuity. You know, like a lot of people will collect all fifty five Chevys or they'll collect all four Corvettes and and or the a specific year of Corvette with every kind of model, make, and, and right. style of that right, particular exactly. car. Um, we have everything from, I mean, we've got a, uh, uh, we're, we're uh, what am I looking for? Um, uh, dirt track started as far as, it, it's got a, it's a Model T frame with a Model A motor in it, and it's a simplex. And that is where the early, um, you know, roundy round uh, dirt racer started. And all the way to the latest state of the art, we've got a Bugatti Veyron in here that, you know, uh, it's one of 12 roadsters that was ever built in the Gen 1 Bugatti. Uh, we got a, um, an, a Lamborghini Aventador in here with a Golf livery on it. It's gorgeous. So it's everything from latest state of the art cars to, um, to where it all started. And we've got two Model A's here, a Model T. And it gives everybody a, a cross section when they walk in, they go, oh, I remember that. I grew up with that, or I grew up with that, or I grew up with this. So, and it, my dad and I, it, when we collected, it was just, hey, whatever we liked at the time. Right. So it's got a huge cross-section, a swatch of not just, but supercars. We've got F50, F40 Ferrari. Hell, the Batmobile, the Michael Keaton Batmobile is sitting in. This is the real one that blew the flames out of the back. Um, the uh, kit of Knight Rider with David Hasselhoff, number one car is in here. Um, these are not replicas. These are the real deal. The and real then, deal. Yeah, and then we also have the the last one we have is um, on one of them is the movie cars, is a General Lee from Dukes of Hazard. It is the number one car. It's here also. It's a, it's a it's an impressive collection, and the fact that you say you have, you know, a, a complete cross section of uh, automobiles actually is a perfect segue into my next question. And motorcycles. And motorcycles, of course. I'm <laughs> because motorcycles, right? When when you first walk into the museum. Be you know, one thing that comes to my mind, John, is advancement in, advancements in technology. Because uh, I, did, I did some research online, and I was able to construct a bit of a timeline. And what I saw online was how technology improved and over maybe 80, 75, 80, 90 years, we went from um, hand-cranking starting cars to electronic ignition and then maybe power steering, electric windows. And it took a very long time to come up. Airbags in the 1980s, and now we have satellite navigation, of course. And, but it seems to me that in, in the last 10, well, 20 years probably, but even made the last 10 years especially, it's just been an acceleration of what things are, things that are happening inside cars, the technology itself, what's happening. And I, I just can't believe, and, and I'd like to get your, your thoughts on that. What are you, what are you seeing? I mean... Are you seeing an acceleration in how quickly things are coming going to market or in, in, in this space, in the race car space? Do you see an acceleration of what, technologically speaking, what's out there and who knows what's to come? I don't even know. 
You know, I, at 64 years old, when I was growing up, uh, I mean, from the time I was I was a little kid, you know, you 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 drool on whatever came by. I mean, the more noise it made, um, the more smoke it made off the rear tires, and and the faster it was was always the thing. You know, I mean, you can spend cubic dollars where you turn around, you spend three or four hundred dollars in a motor, you put a cam in it, and it, and it generates you know 20, 30 more horse. Um, you you put exhaust on it, you get another eight, 10, 12, 14 horse. You put a bigger carburetor on it, you get a little bit more. Today, the technology, you know, and that, that technology, you know, yes, you got power steering, power brakes, you know, you get air conditioning, you know, and I mean, I grew up when, you know, air conditioning was all aftermarket, you know, they bolted on your, on your 65 Mustang, you know, and you look at where it's come in, you know, it, it ran, you know, more money, more money, more money, more money, bigger, 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 bigger displacement, bigger this, bigger fuel, better fuels to where we are today. And you, you talked about, let's back it up, like I said, 20 years. All of a sudden, you know, they started, then they started hanging turbos on it. They started putting superchargers on it, which was early stuff. But, you know, you could just bolt it on on a weekend and, and increase yourself 250 horse. So now what has happened, like you were talking about this last 20 years, it's insanity. Because what's happened is the technology, and, and excuse me because I'm old school guy, my filter's broken. <laughs> but you, you see what's going on, and a true hardcore racer like myself, who's been racing for 40 years, um, well, since I was in carts as a kid, you look at, at what's happened, and you can walk in with a tune, plug it into your, like, let's give an example, your diesel truck, your, your not either Duramax or, or a Cummins diesel on a, on a Dodge. You plug that thing in, you throw a tune on that thing, and the next thing you know, you've gone from 400 foot-pounds of torque, or, you know, I'm sorry, 600 foot-pounds of torque, and 350 horsepower to 500 horsepower, and now eight or 900 foot-pounds of torque that will literally wrinkle the asphalt in a tune. You pay $250, $500, dollars whatever for that tune, you plug and play, and it's, 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 it's crazy. The technology, even in the gas cars, you take like the, the twin turbo EcoBoost in the Fords. I mean, with a simple tune, you can put up 75 horsepower now, immediately, without any changes to the concise workings of the car. You know, and God forbid what's happening with the, as, as the, you know, DC motors, I own uh, my own bike company, so we, we have uh, different bikes and, and uh, a bike, uh, several bike stores, and we do our own design work on the electric bikes. And... That technology has come so fast with the computers and all this stuff. It's so far beyond and above my pay grade. But what isn't is the dynamics of the car. The dynamics of the car and the handling have changed so radically in the automotive industry that, you know, you take, I've got a Corvette out here, it probably put about eight, $9,000 into it. It's an LS, it's a 2013 Grand Sport, and it's a you new know, LS6 Corvette. We hung all the suspension on it and all the good stuff on it and everything else. And my prerequisite is you got to go down the end of the block and you hang a right-hand turn from inside lane to inside lane at 45 miles an hour. And you don't want the rear stepping out. I mean, that to me, okay, now I've got a race car for the street. I can go have a good time. Hmm. But the technology, like the other day I drove a Tesla. Uh, and it was a Model 3 Plus or the Model 3 uh, Performance. You know, and, and a true racer, a true car guy, you know, that's, that sound and that smell is critical. That is what it's all about. You, you know, you're shifting, the RPMs come up, you're hearing the exhaust, all the stuff's going on. Everybody loves that three-dimensional sight, sound, taste, and touch. So you get, I got in that Tesla, and a friend of mine, Tad, owned it, and he's a hard-ass, absolutely, internal combustion tuner. The guy's amazing. 
He's a friggin' prodigy and understands all the tech. I got in this car, I set up like they normally do. I started rolling the throttle and I gave it more and more and more and more. And Tad says, hit it, stuff it to the floor. I said, Tad, I jump on this floor, we're gonna wind up in oncoming traffic and we're gonna be on the news. I said, we're gonna, both of us are gonna be dead. So I got on the freeway and I hit that thing and he said, step on it. I said, I looked across at him and I said, you gotta be kidding me. I didn't do it on the first off-ramp or on-ramp. So the second on-ramp, he said, trust me, just do it. So I stepped into it. The car will only allow you to put as much throttle to it as it will take. Now you gotta remember, we're not talking mechanical grip here. We're talking what I call electronic grip. Hmm. This car is telling, talking to itself in such rapid terms that it is able to take a nine inch wide tire versus a 12 inch wide tire with big treads in it and have virtually the same G-force as a 12 or 14 inch tire that we're talking about on a Corvette. I was overwhelmed. It was the most impressive thing, the technology and how fast the code and the data was firing in that car to take the driver completely out of the equation. So let's, you know, you, you, you touched on a lot of different points there, which I want to go back to. And the, the first one that really I, I heard and was the last thing you said was about the code, and the, the lines of code. You know, in my research, John, for this discussion, one of the things that, I, that became very apparent to me was one measurement that's used in, in many different things is the number of lines of code, how big these programs are to control these different things. And just, now my information might be old because I've done so much research, but one example is Facebook. The entire code base, what they call the code base of Facebook is 100 million lines of code to operate Facebook. And you know how big Facebook is, right? Of course, right? Uh, Google, with all of its all of its services is two, um, I read two billion lines of code. This is a point of reference here. If I were to print out one million lines of code, it would be about 18,000 pages. Just to give you an idea, one million lines of code. So with a hundred million lines of code, you can imagine how big these programs, can you imagine testing all that code? I, I wouldn't even know how you, where you would even start. 18,000 pages is already 14, 14 copies of War and Peace to give you, to give you an idea how much, how much code is out there. Um, but today's average cars, they're running 100 million lines of code. And from where, what I read about, it's, it's all about now one measurement, I, and maybe you've heard this term, it's all about what they call the microprocessor-based electronic control unit, or ECUs. Correct. ECUs are all different little computerized parts that are doing this, and that's 100 million lines. And that's on a traditional pedestrian car that I can buy from a dealer, a race car, high-end race car can have 150 million lines of code, and they're saying within five years, it can be three million, 300 million lines of code. Um, I guess where I'm going with this is that today's cars are not like, not like the muscle cars of the 60s and 70s. These, and we said it already, these are computers that have wheels. And, they, and you talked about the Tesla, for example. Isn't that, isn't that a perfect example of how technology is really just overriding? The automotive industry itself is, is uh, one industry that is really latched onto this this whole notion of using technology everywhere. So what do you think about that? I mean, I mean it, it's here to stay for sure, right? And only going to keep getting better? It's here to stay, obviously? Yeah. Well, absolutely. And for old guys like me, you know, we got a lot of catching up to do, and we'll never catch up. The data, everything is changing so fast, we can't even hang on to it. I'll give you a quick example. In the museum, you've seen that red 1971 Hemi Cuda. It's Vincent, my son, and I completely did a restoration on it. 
that is a a that is not a 428 it's a 573 in it uh, 572 hemi it makes 500 horse of the crank it makes 580 foot pounds of torque now here's an example that is 1971 technology it does it have an ecu yes we put it electronic electronic ignition in it not really an ecu it just controls the ignition so it's not gone to the next level you can take right now, and that was the epitome in 1971, that's when the Hemi stopped. In 72, it stopped because the smog laws, California Air Resources Board, which wasn't really around then, all the stuff with the pollution and the gas prices were off the scale, gas wars, you know the routine, it was, it was, it was a bad deal. The muscle car died, it was gone. At 71, it went away, that was the beginning, 72, 73, it was gone. Everything went down, downsized motor, downsized everything. Now, let's move forward 20, 30 years. You take a Honda. Now, this is the Honda with the ECU traction control. You know, and when Carroll Shelby was jacking around with front wheel drive, he had the early Shelby, which is not the Shelby Mustang we know, but it was a little four cylinder Shelby. Um, he said that you can never put more than 250 horsepower in a front wheel drive car because you can't control it. You jump on it and, and, and the wheels start lighting up and the car goes straight. But with ECU traction control, yaw control, and all the things, that is no longer true. There are cars that make four and 500 horsepower and it's managed by electronics. Now you take a look, going back to 71, my 71 Hemi Cuda, okay? It is just faster than hell. Not. A Honda today, a Toyota today, can beat that Hemi without even thinking about it. <laughs> Stop. Because that Hemi stopped. Because that, you know, and everybody always drives up next to me and they throw a rev at it and they want to race the car. Well, one thing you don't line up against is a Tesla, hmm. because I got a chance to drive one. It goes zero to stupid and faster than, you know, there's Pugatis <laughs> and everything else out there that will smoke, that you will smoke. But the technology in that huge leap, now it's gone to the point where you got these little four cylinders that are turbocharged that will literally, the hot hatchbacks, that will literally smoke anything on the road. Hmm. That's how the technology has changed so radically. And with the ECU and all the electronics, it's now taken over and taken those internal combustion engines and doing things with them that we as an old guy couldn't even imagine would happen and now what happens is you got dc motors the electronics and you go into the you know the, the era of the tesla and the electric car you know it, it's just it becomes it gets stupid fast a whole new meaning and with what the electronic capabilities of these cars now it's taking the driver more and more and more out of the equation right exactly um you know, one of the things that I, 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 I read about was this, this idea or this phenomenon called accelerating change. And what that basically means is that the reason why it, it's getting faster and faster and faster exponentially is because the technology itself is recreating the next stage of technology. So it's no longer relying on a person. So the technology creates more technology, which creates even more technology. So every iteration is so much better than the previous one in a smaller amount of time. So it's accelerating change, and you know it makes me wonder. I mean, I, I go out in the show in the museum here, and my I have eyes of wonder. My eyes light up, but I I think someone who's twenty years old today, what what are they going to see when they're thirty, even forget fifty, even thirty years old? What's the future look like for them? Who knows? I, I don't. I can't even imagine. I mean, I do have imagination. It's pretty vivid. I think in three D terms, most people don't. But you know, you take a look. Let's back up. You said. The, the technology creates new technology. Right. Let's look at Terminator. Okay. The computer became self-aware on X date. 
and it says, okay, we don't need the humans anymore, so we're just going to wipe them out, all right? Now, what you said is very interesting. The technology is creating new technology, and the technology is becoming pseudo-self-aware. Right. So the driving technology, they talk about automatous driving and all the other stuff going on, and we'll get into that later. I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of questions for that. But that technology is generating so rapid, and like you said, it's generating new technology, new technology, new technology. It happens so fast where it's not just like putting a cam in a motor, putting ABS on the brakes and all the other stuff. It, it's such a rapid de increase that it's, it's geometric. It's growing literally geometrically. Correct. Right. And every time you see, you know, Elon, when he talks or says something, you look at the technology he's created, these new super presses and all the things he's got going on, that's strictly mechanical. But then you talk about the exoskeleton and how that exoskeleton works. The engineering was a guy with a drafting board. The engineering today, you can simulate run, you can simulate aerodynamics, you can simulate everything without ever putting it into a wind tunnel because you already know where it's at. You look at the Pugani. Half those Puganis have never been in a wind tunnel, but they create so much downforce and so much aerodynamics that it's just off the scale. And it's, again, that technology is so rapid, you just, it's, it's geometric. You know, this makes me think about when I was a kid again, you know, I, 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 I mean, I had a very basic set of tools when I was a kid. I mean, I had my little set of screwdrivers and wrenches and ratchets and sockets, and I could pretty much at the time work on my simple little car and do the most basic what repair. Kind of car? What was your first car? My first car was a, uh, a Chevy 2 Nova, actually. But I think about today, if somebody was going into automotives today, the, the, what's in their toolbox? First of all, do they even have tools, or are they, or are they more developers or software testers? Or I mean, obviously, the need for people with wrenches still exists. But you can have so many different, there are so many different career paths someone can go now in this industry, more so than ever before, I think. I mean, you, you see it. I mean, I'm sure some of the cars on, on the floor here must have some amazing um, diagnostic tools to keep them running well. The interesting thing about cars today is it's, I, I go back to the term plug and play. Um, you, you plug into the port and you can diagnose a lot of what's going on with that car. I mean, you can figure out, okay, is the door switch wrong? Is this wrong? Um, you know, are we getting too many hydrocarbons? Is the O2 sensor bad? You know, it will pick up and throw air codes all over the place. It makes it easier to diagnose with today's mechanics. They can go in, hit a plug and go. The thing about that is you're still gonna to have to require a wrench. Um, the old school of having, you know, a 40, 50 year old guy there or gal, um, that has the, the experience, they, they, they know the car's running rough. Okay. It's either gotta be carburation or, or, or fuel. So, you know, all you got is carbon fuel. Those are the two things that can go bad. So you go back through that and you go, okay, my experience tells me that if it's missing and, and this is this, this is this, well, that experience really like you go to an auto zone or one of the parts houses now. 90% of these, matter of fact, 99% of these kids that are behind the counter have never even turned a wrench. What happens is they're computer people. And they said, okay, it's this part, this part, there's the number, this is the year it came off of, click, here it goes. Okay, it's a belt for a 76 Ford van. Here it is, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's with the air conditioning belt or it's the AC or it's the, uh, the water pump belt, an alternator belt. Um, you're still with the automotive industry, you're still gonna have to have the guys and the gals with a the wrench. There's no doubt about it. But as you get more and more towards electronics, and electronics used to scare the hell out of all of us because the more electronics meant more to go bad. 
You know, I mean, you got the MGs and it was Lucas. Lucas, the big joke was his Prince of Darkness because half the time the electronics didn't work. He would take a dump and be on the side of the road. But today now, the electronics have become so dependable. Like, for example, a Tesla. Now, Tesla's got its own series of problems. Yeah, there's no doubt that it's got growing pains. But most of these things are modular. They plug in place. So you unplug that and put a new one in, it's done. It's got a full diagnostics where you get on the screen and you can self-diagnose a lot of this stuff with a simple laptop or your phone, and you can diagnose where the problem is and go directly to it. It's still going to require a wrench, but as the electronics have advanced so much in electric motors and DC motors, it's becoming less and less. There's less and less problems. You know, you still have to. You, you got to be concerned with battery. You know, battery recycling because you know they don't they don't recycle well. But there is going to be the the engineering has changed so much. The electronics have changed so much that the need for the hardcore diagnostic mechanic who has got to self-diagnose it without electronics is becoming less and less and less. Hmm. Obsolete, maybe? I don't think it'll ever be obsolete. There's always going to be some kind of mechanical uh, modus, you know, uh, operandi. There's, there's always going to be some locomotion that's, got, that's mechanical that's going to require. Will it require less and less? Yes. But you're still going to have the line mechanic that's going to go out there and the Tesla takes a dump. you got to pull the motor out, kind of pull the battery assembly out. You know, you got wheel bearings that are going to be a problem. you still got drive shafts. you still got, you know, axles, CV joints. Those things are still in there. And unless we get to the point where it becomes a hovercraft, you're still going to need some type of mechanic that can do it. Now, they're going to have to be a little more advanced or less advanced. They're not going to be, it has to be quite as savvy, but they're going to rely more and more on a computer that plugs in plug-in diagnostics. And not necessarily knowing what they're actually changing, just stopping a board and that's Boom, that. the code goes off, yeah. go, okay, let's say it's this, it's this particular part, it's a, it's a sensor or a relay or something, you gotta replace that. You're still gonna require a mechanical aptitude of some type to be able to go after that. Wow. You know, uh, we talk about technology and we're saying how dependent we really are, or tech cars have become on technology, that it's actually been uh, created a, a, a the, the prices of cars right now are, are through the roof because of this big chip shortage I keep hearing the semiconductor chip shortage and because they can't get enough chip this is what I'm reading on the news and um, prices for cars are just escalating beyond belief right now what do you think about that well you, you got to take a look at our environment where we're at and this is this is my again my own opinion um, you know and I, I deal with China and Taiwan a lot because of our bike business. And, you know, we do our own development, own design work on the bike. And, and you know, I, I'd like to say I'm, I'm the guy that does the form. And I've got a, uh, Anthony, my general manager, does the function. He's, he, he's really tight on components and understands it. Where we're at with what's going on, let's put COVID aside. Let's back this thing up. The chip problem, COVID. The other stuff, COVID. You got a, we got a worldwide pandemic that whether real, right, wrong, or different, or blown out of proportion, it's still a thing that happened. You know, if I was gonna order from Shimano right now to get bike parts, okay, two years. We're looking at two years. Two years. Two years. So what happened is the whole dynamic of the world has changed. Let's go back to the original question. We see chips and everything else, but take a look at, let's back up. Take a look at a Prius. And a Prius are what, 40 grand? Sure. Something like that? Sure. And you take a look at, uh, you go and buy a Tesla. Tesla's entry level, 40 grand. Okay, and they've got some new stuff coming out. The, the, the Tesla 3 base model is $40,000. So it's apples to apples. Apples and apples. You take a look at, at where we're at. You go and you, you buy a, a truck. You know, you buy a diesel four-wheel drive truck. It's going to be sixty-five 
So actually, you, you talk about the prices have gone up. If you throw out all of the outside, let's, for lack of a better word, the outside, you know, downside pressure of all the stuff going on, the chips and everything else, take a look at what's going on with the advent of the electric car. But the big picture here is the price of cars are going down. And you're going, look at me going, what? Take a look at the technology. Hmm. You know, look at a Prius, okay? You look at, at, at the Tesla entry level, and they're $40,000, all right? Well, you know, when you and I were growing up, hell, you know, I mean, it, you know, the, the Hemi Cuda, like we got outside, let's give that an example in 71, that car was, you know, was $4,000, $4,100 for the full-dress Hemi Cuda for the strip model Mustang in 68, 65, in that area. Okay, that strip model was, you know, was $1,900. That's completely true. All right, let's switch gears and let's talk about safety. You know, I read an article uh, recently that if you can imagine the, the most, or the safest airplane, so I guess it applies to cars also, the safest airplane would be one that didn't have any windows. Now, why would you, why would that be the case? Apparently, where the windows are, see, you know, are in, into the airplane, that's the weakest point of the, se the seals. That's the correct. seals, exactly, right. So if they can eliminate that, then you have a, a unit that is far more strong, you know, the integrity is far, far more, and it can survive a crash. But wait a second, I'm inside this thing, what do I do? Well, now they use what's called augmented reality, AR, and on the walls, they're projecting images of what's happening outside. So you have the illusion that you're still looking at a window, but you're not, and you're in this now safer design. I wonder if the same technology would be available in a car. Because the, 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 everything I've been reading online, cars in the 2050s or 2060s might not have windows. You're going to go into this little bubble, and we're using AR, augmented reality. You're going to be seeing what's going on around you because you're not going to need to see out because the car's going to be driving itself. So there you go. Well, if you take a look right now, I think Tesla is one of them and several other car companies, they uh, have no rear mirrors. They're trying to get it approved by DOT, Department of Transportation, so they're all video. So what happens, you're looking on the screen, you don't ever look out the side. So it enables you, it's got a, obviously, you know, you got a, a mirror that goes two-dimensional, unless you have a convex mirror. You know, I mean, you saw it in Jurassic Park, the, um, you know, things in the mirror are closer than they appear when the T-Rex was chasing you down the, down the street. The big picture is, with that, you can put a wide-angle 180-degree mirror on it, so you can see everything from your peripheral all the way back over the top. You know, and then they got the 3D cameras on there now. They're stitched together. There's a camera on each corner of the car that is, that is electronically stitched together, so you get a complete pattern of where you're at. You can see where you're parking stuff. It looks like you're being followed by a drone. We talk about these autonomous self-driving cars, and obviously that's a huge departure from where we are today because and, and I think a lot of people will never want it because they don't want to cede control of the vehicle right where but I could argue I suppose or people could argue that it's a far safer proposition if you're not the one in control if the I'm just you know maybe maybe because I don't have the ability potentially the car has the ability because it's communicating with other things it can see around blind spots that you may not may not know about. It can see things over a hill that you may not you you, you don't know what's coming up. Whereas a car has that information, it's getting that information in real time. So the culture we talk about the culture, the driving culture. How is that going to affect? How is this, what, what's the impact on on human culture on human driving culture? I, 
I tell you what, I'll give you an example. This is just from an old guy. Sure. Okay. okay. Um, it's being obsessive compulsive, ADD, and all the other things that, 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 that make me who I am. It would be a very difficult thing to be able to give up that steering wheel. All right. Uh, you know, because I understand the dynamics of things that can happen being a, you know, a race car driver all my life. Example, I've got a friend of mine who had the new Mercedes uh, AMG, whatever it was, the one that looks like kind of like a pig, you know, it's all routed and stuff, and, and uh, it, it, it does everything. It'll drive in the, in the line, within the lines, and do all the routine. Here's the interesting thing. Um, you come up, and this is, I was driving his Mercedes, and it was on the auto drive program. We flicked it off auto drive, but it has the brake sensing on the Mercedes. Now you talk about it's able to respond faster than a human could even think about it. You can't even process fast as that thing can go off and it's already tagging the brakes. This is an exact, exact incident that happened to me. I'm going down the 91 freeway, I'm in the fast lane, I start moving over four lanes to get off you know, two miles ahead. And I come up on the back of another car and I'm probably, we're doing 65, 70 miles an hour and I'm 20, 25 feet behind the car. Well, as I pull into the draft of the back of this car, the Mercedes I'm driving freaks out immediately. It jams on the brakes and put, if it hadn't been for seat belts, it would have put everybody through the front wheel. Front wow. wow. So I sweep across the back, this goes off. Now that's neat and wonderful, okay? Well, I gotta adjust my driving style or turn the damn thing off. Here's the problem. That's reacting so fast. What about the car behind me that was 35 feet behind me he can't react or she can't react that fast. And they don't have the same technology yet. Boom, slams into behind you. And you know, you're talking 30 to 40 years before all this technology is out mm. there. And the auto drive, what happens, you know, and all of a sudden next time that guy plows into, or gal plows into the back of you. Now it created a problem that was never there. We're talking about flow. We're talking about car culture. People flow at a certain rate. Everything has a frequency in life. As we drive, we have frequencies. Now, now we screw up and check up, and there's rear ends all the time, and all the stuff people aren't paying attention. In general, for the average person, absolutely. But if you're driving the least bit aggressive, and you come across somebody's bow or somebody's stern on their, on their car, it's going to react. And if it reacts, can the person behind that react that fast? The answer is no, it can't happen. So you've got these issues, and then the automatist driving. Okay, yeah, GPS. What happens when you lose GPS? Oh, well, it's gonna follow the dots in the road. What happens if you go under a bridge and there's no dots in the road on an old, on an old, old car, old, or not an old car, but an old uh, um, uh, piece of real estate as far as the road? There's no dots in the road, or there's no lines in the road. Or what happens is it's, it's, it's the least bit funny, or a car's coming at you, and he comes into your lane. Well, what are you gonna do? Are you going to, it's going to, it's going to do everything it can to keep you from hitting the car next to you. And it's going to do everything it can to keep the car in front of you. But if you can't brake fast enough, this guy's coming after you. You have to make a decision. Do I sideswipe the guy next to me and move over or do I take a head on? Hmm. So those decisions, the car can't really make in that point in time. But do people screw up? Yeah. There are more screw ups from people getting in accidents. I think it would make the road safer, but you still have equations that are not addressed based on car culture. So it's, it's just, it's, so, so I think what you're saying that in, in maybe 20 to 30 years, we'll, we'll all be better off, but it's that transition period we're in, that gray area right now that we're in. That, that, I that's think you're the gonna day. see some, it, it's gonna be very unique to see how technology deals with non-technology cars. And but, non -technology that's, that's not, but that's not, that's here today. 
I mean, we have that today. It's happening today. Yeah. The, uh, everybody thinks the autonomous driving will be done within the next two or three years. Everybody will be driving electric car cars that don't need to be driven. Hmm. That's not that's not true. Underneath power lines, different things. There's obstructions. There's stuff. Electronics. That's there's true. There's all kinds of pieces that you have to deal with. Now, in a perfect society, like you, Manhattan, you're driving down through New York. Do you think all those signals are going to get through from the satellite to all those all those <laughs> right. high-rise buildings? Right. The answer is no way. Do you think it's going to be able to incorporate New York drivers? Come on. Hmm. You and I have been how long in New York? You were raised <laughs> in New York? you think on the snow and the ice and all the crap that goes along? Well, you're right. So I just have a couple... I don't know about right. It's just, like I said... It's an interesting... I'm old and it's, it's just an idea and an opinion. It's an interesting opinion, though, for sure. So... Two more questions, and we'll kind of wrap this up. Are there any cars out there today that you would love to have in your collection? And I don't mean a brand-new car. It can be a car that's 100 years old. What's, what's the uh, one that you said, oh, my collection would be complete if I had this one car? What would it be? Is there one, first of all? I, it, that's, a, that's a very difficult question. Okay. Why is it um, difficult? The, well, there's... What I would like to have is in the museum is, you know, it's a very hot item now, the, the GT3 Porsche. Okay. There is one that was like, it's five or six years old. It, we call it the pumpkin car. It was black with orange, all orange accents. That would be a wonderful car to have here. Now they reached up to 200000 you know, $200,000. Okay. And being a small museum, we have a rental program where people rent space from us. So they bring their exotic cars in. And a lot of these guys have big egos, and which is awesome. And they want their cars talked about. So what we do is we put a big story together. We launch it on our website and on our social. Look what's here. We are rotating inventory a lot because it's other people's cars. So our inventory is always fresh. So it, it, it's kind of neat. Could I? Could we afford to go buy a million-dollar Roadster Bugatti Veyron Gen 1? And there's only 12 in the world. Now, I mean, it was bought at a million. Now it's worth $2 million. Could we do that? No. Hmm. Not as it, you know, which... You got to ask yourself which charities aren't going to get the money, and right. that's not happening. But through our rental program, where people rent space from us, uh, it's our premier auto housing. It keeps our our inventory update all the time. There's always something new to see, and when we launch it, let them know, let people know on our website. Like I said, all our social that hey, look what's here, like the you know, the like Batmobile, the Batmobile, right, exactly. But if I could, I I would love to have a a Pugani, one of the top end Puganis. It, it's a very Interesting technology car, all carbon fiber in there, two and a half to three million. Depends on how crazy you get with it. That would be a neat car to have, and I think it would be. When I always look at this museum, it's no longer personal. It's what the draw would get people in here to be able to generate money for the charity. Right. And that is, I have to take my ego, which is large, out of the equation, and we have to take a look at what our consumer, our consumer is what people want to see. It's basically in the bike business called model inventory. What is the model inventory that will bring the most people into the museum? And that's that particular car. Um, some of the new Ferraris are, are incredible. Um, we'd love to see one of those in there. Um, but you know that the, the, the Porsche. I know it sounds it sounds small compared to the, you know I mean the, the F50 we got is three point three point eight million. The F40 is three point two million. Um, you know, and then the 195S, which is the serial number fifty three, is the is six million dollars. That's the fifty third car ever built. There's only two in the world. Wow. So, you know, the, the, the Porsche or one of the new Pagani's would be a real, real neat deal. That would, that would be a big icing on the cake. You know, you know what my, you know, my car would be? What would that? It would be a Tucker. A Tucker 
a Tucker uh, torpedo, I think it was called. That right? is a whole story on itself. The, the great you know, movie. The, the, I, big, I, the big boys put him put him right out of exactly. Business. That Tucker had technology. It had to, you know, he turned the wheel, the lights turned. The seat I mean, had seatbelts. The seatbelts. I mean, the stuff that <laughs> the stuff that we take for take for granted today. That Tucker, you know, I mean, obviously the, the big three killed him. You right. Know, they put him out of business. Interesting story. Because but he had some serious technology back then. I had the good fortune to, um, to actually not sit in it, but I got to be near one, take a picture with one once in my life. And that was... was... I got a friend of mine who has a Tucker. Maybe we'll get it down here on another oh, show. Oh, that would be... We'll, we'll put your butt into it and let you... Uh, that would be around. over the top. That would be... I would be... I would be Getting on a plane the next day if I knew you had a Tucker in here. <laughs> well, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> that would be awesome. Got, we, we know people. I think you do know people. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. John, I got to tell you, uh, this in, entire experience, seeing the cars and talking to you, and, you know, one thing that's, that's very obvious to me is not, not just your knowledge, because that's hands down and very, very obvious to me is your knowledge, but your passion. And that's what really comes comes through and really came through in this whole discussion is your passion. Um, you know, you were concerned to do this discussion, I think, because I, it's technology-based, but it didn't matter. Your passion overrode the entire thing, and, and for that, I love it. Anybody who speaks with passion is somebody who I love chatting with, so thank you very much for your time. I got to well, tell you. We greatly appreciate it. I mean, you know, just to have, you know, and, and really enjoyed the interview. Um, and like you said, that passion is what drives us. The passion drives my daughter, it drives the Marconi family. And that passion and that commitment has been instilled in us from my father. And we are, like I said, with a third generation now, my daughter's taken over and I'm backing out on the reins. She's doing a phenomenal job. And she's got, she makes my passion look like child's play. Wow. So. I think it's wonderful. Well, I'll tell you what, John, I think we're gonna leave it here. And uh, just, as I said, I want to just truly thank you. This has been such a, a unique opportunity for me to actually come to the museum, see it again. I should point out one more thing, just as a, an aside, but how you and I first met, I, I did attend an event here with, uh, thank you for the Ocean Computer User Group. They're the ones, they had the event here, and they made the introduction for me. So thank you to Ocean User Group as well. That was a, a few weeks ago. But um, to you and to your entire family, and I think, um, that you share your collection and also more, more importantly that foundation for the kids is just a, a wonderful selfless act and I just think it's so commendable and noble so thank you for doing that as well that's what we do events yeah. to generate money for kids it's great thank you very much it's been a real pleasure John I hope to uh, see you again come back to the museum more often and um, maybe one day we'll, I'll come back and we'll get a chance to sit in that Tucker. You know, we'll you don't need a green card to come from New York to California. That's what, I, that's what I'm told. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Thankfully, it's been a real pleasure. It's Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks.